Hey everyone, it's Mary Catherine. Another interview from my personal archives this week while Vic and I are on vacation, but a special interview with a Getting Hammered fan favorite. Look, I already know she's a fan favorite. She's my brave and awesome friend, Janice Dean. You know her from Fox News, where she's known as the weather machine, or from her battles with now former Governor Andrew Cuomo, whose bad behavior on COVID policy, especially in nursing homes, Janice beat basically the entire press corps to understanding. She's also written books for both kids and grown-ups, the latest of which is Make Your Own Sunshine. She is the picture of optimism in the face of adversity, and I just love her, and I know you will too, as she tells about some of her family's travails, her quest for accountability from Cuomo, who was actually still governor when we taped this, and her unique and uplifting approach to life. I should also note she just started her own podcast, The Janistine Podcast, which you can find wherever you find your podcasts, and you should. Now, enjoy Janice. She's the best. I am here, so lucky to be here today with one of my buddies, my relentlessly relentless and relentlessly positive friend, Janice Dean. How are you doing, Janice? I am good. It's so nice to see you. I know we sort of, we text back and forth with girlfriends. And so I always feel like I'm connected to you, but it's it's nice to really talk to you. To actually talk and see each other. So you're going to have to sit tight for all of your, all of your creds. I got to <laughs> tell people all about you. So she is one of my great friends. She is a TV talent with Roots in Radio. She's a children's author of the Freddie Frogcaster series, of which my children are huge fans. She is a New York, New York Times bestselling author of Mostly Sunny, How I Learned to Keep Smiling Even Through the Rainiest Days. And now she is an author, yet again, of Make Your Own Sunshine, Inspiring Stories of People Who Find Light in Dark Times. She is also, you will know her as the senior meteorologist at Fox News, Janice Dean, The Weather Machine. She's the mother of two, and she is lately known for her battle to reveal the truth behind COVID deaths in New York's nursing homes under the administration of Governor Andrew Cuomo. We're going to get into that later, but the wonderful Janice Dean is going to tell us a little bit about her journey. What, where do you want to start? Well, so I, I wanted to start with, I, I want to talk about Make Your Own Sunshine, which is right here in my office, and I've been reading it, but let's start with just the life philosophy that went into the first book and is followed through in this book. So I'm wondering about your life philosophy and how that came to be. You say you learned it. So where did that come from? Well, I think I've always been an optimistic person. I think if you talk to my mom would probably tell you that ever since I was younger, I had, you know, an optimistic view on things. I was pretty active. I like to go outside and interview people on the street, you know, so I think there's destiny in that, what I'm doing right now. But I will say the turning point for me and realizing what is really important was actually when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which was 16 years ago. Yeah, 2005. And I say that because I had achieved so much, you know, everything for me up until that point was... You know, I'm a kid from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and I want, you know, I wanted to come to the U.S., move to New York City, be a broadcaster. I mean, that was a dream come true. And, it, and I thought that that was success, right? I met my husband at that time, thank God. <laughs> and, and he was there when I was diagnosed. And I really thought at that point, you know, you bring rock bottom into this it was a really low point because I thought all of the things that I sort of stamped with success, you know, the, the big TV job, the New York city, it was, you know, sort of sh shattered, I guess, if that's not a great word, but I, in a moment, I just thought it's over. I'm going to be in a wheelchair. My health is going to go downhill. My boyfriend is probably going to leave me. Why would he be stuck with somebody who has a, you know, a, an illness that's incurable? Right. But that was a turning point because it made me realize what is really important. And that is family, your health, obviously, the people that are around you, that support you, that love you unconditionally, the fame and success, you know, that's not as important anymore when you're right. diagnosed with something that, you know, is life-changing. But I from that point on... I decided to make the best of the situation. You know, I did go through a period of great depression and 
trying, but also trying to find stories of hope in the midst of a diagnosis like that. I was lucky I met Neil Cavuto, who I know you know, that works right. at Fox, who also had a diagnosis of, of multiple sclerosis. I was able to talk to him about how to go through life with something like this that's so challenging. And so he was also somebody who said, you're going to be okay. And it, right. it's almost like you need that person or something to tell you you're going to be okay. And then, you know, the light comes in, the sun yeah. happens. I think you're right. There's, there's something to knowing somebody who's been through the fire before you. The more similar, the better. And with Cavuto, obviously a, a, a great example for you with on-camera work and the same battle. I wonder, I think a lot of people can probably re relate to that part where you get, you get bad news and you fast forward to the worst possible end scenario. How did you, in day-to-day -day life, keep yourself from going there? Oh, I went there. Yeah. I went there fairly frequently for, I would say, you know, probably six months. It took me six months to a year to sort of accept what was going on and also find a doctor who was going to be hopeful. You know, I talk about in the previous book, Mostly Sunny, how it was important to find a doctor who was optimistic, you know, not somebody who was just going to be like, well, I, I got a lot of patience here, you know? And so that took me a few tries. I, it was almost like a dating process. I, I went through a couple of neurologists where I was like, this is not a good fit. You know, I, I need somebody who has a good bedside manner, who is going to tell me, you know, I'm going to be okay. And there, and there's hope out there. So, you know, I found a wonderful neurologist also a wonderful nurse practitioner who I am very good friends with to this day, who brought sunshine. It was like, okay, you've got this, but the therapies are getting better. You're, you know, you're diagnosing this early. We're getting this early. And they were also, he was the one, Dr. Tolman, who said to me, are, are you guys planning to have kids anytime soon? Like yeah. thinking about that. And Sean and I had gotten married and we, we didn't really talk too much about children. I mean, we were, and we got married late in the game, but Dr. Tolman said, you know, women who are pregnant, there's this, there's something that happens in the body where everything is protecting the baby as opposed to attacking itself, which is hmm. what MS is. It's attacking the central nervous system. And so I was like, oh, I looked at Sean. I'm like, are we having kids? Maybe we should have some kids. Right. It's, it's a reprieve and a baby. It's <laughs> But I, I am so grateful because I think to myself, mm -hmm. holy moly, if I wasn't diagnosed, would, would we have had that conversation? I certainly hope we would have, but it doesn't matter because it was introduced. And now I have two beautiful children. I cannot imagine my life without them. So when I look back on this diagnosis that, that really you know, did sort of bring me to a screeching halt, it also in some ways gave me this brand new path that... I went on that was just a, what a journey, what a destination. And where are you now in that journey? I know from texting with you, you've been doing new treatments over the past year, year and a half or so. And I, I love that you're a newswoman as well. So I hear news about MS treatments from you as they're being developed. So what, it, what does that look like right now? I am, I've been on a new therapy for a couple of years now. I used to do a daily injection that I had to do myself, which was brutal, but I did it for many years, but then that's stopped working. I'm not going to say the medicine stopped working. I just wasn't good at giving myself a needle every day. Mm. And it was just getting to the point where, you know, I just constantly reminded that there's something wrong with me. And yeah. so there are great new therapies out there. I'm on a once a month infusion where I go in and I, I, you know, I get an infusion for an hour of the medicine and then I don't have to think about it for a month. That's and great. I've been relatively good, relatively good on this new therapy. There are, you know, side effects and there's like a very small chance that I could get a brain illness, which obviously is a bad thing, but the, the wonderful parts of this override that small chance of something terrible happening. Right. So that's been really great. And as you mentioned, there are really exciting things happening. I'm actually working on an op-ed that I'm going to probably publish in the next couple of weeks. Very recently, there was an article about a vaccine 
an MS vaccine. And it's the same science behind the COVID vaccine. So if you can imagine that these new advances in science are all coming together to help other illnesses, like it's like puzzle pieces. You get one puzzle piece that puts together and then it's like, oh, but this one also works. And then this one comes in here and this one. (laughs) So it's really, it's so exciting. I did talk to my neurologist just about the fact that there is a potential vaccine. I said, when is it available? And she said, probably, you know, five to 10 years from now, but still to have something that's within range. I mean, when I was diagnosed 16 years ago, there weren't that many therapies. And now there are all quite a quite a number of therapies. People are doing very well despite living with the illness. And, you know, so I, I'm hopeful. I really am. I'm hopeful. It's such heartening news. And it's, you know, it, it came at a time when obviously that was that was connected the, to the mRNA yes. technology of the 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 COVID vaccine. And so that's a great way to transition to writing a book about making your own sunshine during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when you took on this book, I believe it was before the pandemic, but it sort of straddled this strange year we've had that's been very tough on people. I know has been tough on you personally. Tell me about what it, what it was like crafting that during this time. You're right. I started the idea of it came before the pandemic, but I wrote most of it and conducted most of the interviews in the book during the pandemic. And for me, I've been writing good news stories for many years now. I do a daily segment on the Fox News radio called The Dean's List. I've been doing that for years now. One minute good news story that comes in between, you know, the dark politics (laughs) and the you know, obviously COVID that we're dealing with. So, you know, I'll, I'll come on and say, you know, so-and-so did this today. They made the Dean's List, you know? So I enjoyed doing those and I heard from listeners that they loved hearing them. So I always thought to myself, some of these deserve longer than a minute. Somebody, mm-hmm. Some of these deserve a full chapter in a book. And so that's how that sort of came about. I, I put aside my favorite Dean's List stories, but I found more and more of them during the pandemic. That's one thing I really realized is even though we were all socially distanced and the stories were terrible, there were more and more stories of people coming together and doing amazing things for neighbors, their community. And so while we were going through a very dark period of time, which I know we're going to talk about, the fact that I had interviews lined up with these people that brought kindness and light and humanity into a very dark place gave me such solace and and made me look forward to every day I was talking to somebody new about something incredible that they had done. And I realized that the common thread through the stories are adversity, going through something challenging and coming out on the other side and saying, I'm going to do something with this. I'm going to put this out into the universe and become a better person. You know, that's, that's, that's really what the book is all about. And little did I know I was writing the book for other people, but the person that took the most from it, turned, the one turned writing it. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- there's something about that, that you're sort of ch- forcing yourself to change your perspective by jumping into someone else's story of a great moment in their lives. And I, I was reading about the principal Jabari Wallace, uh, I believe in North Carolina. Yep. And his, his, thing that he did. He went, he went out and gave all of his students, his graduating students in the spring, before we knew how any of this was going to go, a personal graduation visit in their yard uh, to make sure that they knew they were valued. And I love the creative thinking behind that too, because I think one of the ways out of rough times is to realize that you can behave differently than you have done in the past. And if you tell yourself you only have one way of acting, during adversity, you will not be as successful trying to get through it. And so I think there's a thread in there of people realizing things just really changed for us. How do we make the best of that? That's right. And how resilient and how creative we are as people to, to adapt and change to any type of situation. You know, I talk about the big 50th birthday party that I was supposed to have in Vegas. And that all obviously came to a, a screeching halt. But my husband brought Vegas to my living room and my dining room. And I woke up and he had 
you know, bought a big backdrop of Las Vegas. And then he had gotten a roulette table and a, a neighbor of ours had actual like real clay game pieces. I mean, he really thought outside of the box. And then we had, I, he arranged this car parade for me where neighbors and friends, you know, even though we couldn't hug each other, I saw them in the car and screaming and yelling and my kids filming me while I was like crying and laughing at the same time. It was, I just thought to myself, this is the best birthday ever, you know? And there have, there have been moments during this year and, and something that I realized, you know, after my, after my own personal story is that not every second can be sad. Even when things are the toughest that they could possibly be in your life, when you're, when the hand you've been dealt seems the hardest, mm -hmm. not every moment can be tough. And these moments in Make Your Own Sunshine are a great example of how even, even during the pandemic, perhaps especially during the pandemic, people find new ways to make and find that light, which you just have to do when things are tough. I agree completely. And you have to let yourself not be sad. You know, you have to let yourself have that moment, you know, of, I don't know, you know, you can cry, of course, but it's okay to laugh and, and be connected to somebody. And yeah, I mean, I know you, you've gone through that. It's just, it's, you know, there's, there's no right way or wrong way, but I also think it's important to, you know, embrace those moments that, that yeah. you are smiling, you know. I've enjoyed reading about Janelle Boston, who is in Make Your Own Sunshine. She's a 55-year-old woman who is diagnosed with MS, MS, and it has progressed for her. Tell me a little bit about her and what, what her journey was. Amazing lady. She's in Australia. There's not too many outside of U the U.S., but she I had to feature her because I read her story and it brought tears to my eyes. So one of her biggest dreams was to climb Mount Tully in Australia. And she, I think as a girl guide, wanted to do it. And just there was a storm and they never got to go. So she always remembered that. And there was a face group, Facebook group that she was a part of that asked, you know, what if you could do something, what would it be? What's your, you know, your big dream that you would want to accomplish that you never got to accomplish. And she wrote that, that she wanted to, to climb Mount Tully. But now that she has advanced MS, she can't walk. It's hard for her to walk, but it's something that she always wanted to do. And, oh, somebody saw her post, the rugby, the Tully rugby team, and people started saying, let's make it happen. Let's make this happen for this wonderful lady. They got together and made her a special chair that they, that one of the, I think they, they took turns hoisting her on the, their backs. There were several of them that, that had this, you know, chair that she sat in and they climbed the mountain with her on their backs. Amazing. Oh my gosh. And her husband followed along too. And just talking to them, you know, you could tell, she said they got to the top and she was so happy and the clouds literally parted and she was able to see like miles and miles away. And that was just so special because she, obviously she's going through a, a tough time right now, knowing that her diagnosis is, you know, there's different types of MS. She, I have relapsing remitting where I will have a, I'll have a flare up and I'll go back to quote unquote normal whereas her MS is progressive. So she is truly going sort of downhill with her health and not being able to walk is one of, you know, the results, but man, to have like strangers do this for her and just have that moment and be able to talk about it. It's, it's incredible. There, there's another woman in the same chapter who I just was amazed by who sh her name is Cheryl mm -hmm. and she runs a lot. <laughs> She, she does. I run some. Cheryl runs a lot. Tell me a little bit about her and what it was like to report on people who do have different forms of MS and how that feels to you to, mm -hmm. to hear those stories. Right. So Cheryl actually is a runner and she, <laughs> she found a way to continue to keep running even though her MS was progressing and she had something called drop foot. So that was hindering her from doing what she loves to do, which is running. And she was able to, you know, create a, a contraption, a boot almost that she put on her leg so that she was able to continue to do these 
these runs while she was, you know, progressing with MS. And so she didn't let this illness stop her from doing what she loved to do, which, which helped her, you know, with her own well-being, you know, just being able to continue to do something that she loves. And even though, you know, she wasn't running at the same pace she was running when she was younger and pre-diagnosis, it still gave her great confidence, great joy. And so that's, you know, that's somebody who takes a challenge and says, I'm going to do it regardless of what people tell me, you know, regardless of what doctors tell me. And, you know, when I talk to these women, you know, we're, I feel like we're all sort of of the same club, you know, we're all diagnosed with something. Obviously, you know, there are varying degrees of the illness, but we all have the same outlook. You know, we all have this sort of live each day to the fullest. Every day is a blessing. Yes, we can feel bad for ourselves, allow ourselves to feel, you know, mm, this is not a great day. Yeah. But but the sun does come out and and they're they're inspiring they're so inspiring their stories are inspiring they're just amazing strong resilient women yeah there's a bit of a sorority i i happen to know a lot of widows now who are often in touch with me and i always say i'm very sorry you have to be part of this club but i'm glad to know you and there there's also something redeeming about being able to show someone that there is another that there's a path out of this that that it will look different and that doesn't discount the pain you're in right now Mm -hmm. as you were when you were first diagnosed when when the moment comes and your life changes you got to have some time to deal with that yeah but there's a special there's a special moment where where i can occasionally tell somebody it looks different Mm -hmm. in the future and i think the stories you share and and having connections with those women is a similar thing where you get to say there's a there's a there's a story not written for you yet yep and it's out there mm-hmm. just feeling blessed finding these women too mm-hmm. it, it, there is something very spiritual i guess or you know finding somebody who is going through the same thing you're going through but also has that sort of we got only one life here you know, yeah. we can choose to be upset and depressed and, and, and sorry for ourselves. And you can do that. I mean, that's, but, but I choose to try to be on the sunny side of the street. Yeah. There was an, uh, there was a moment in Make Your Own Sunshine too, where, where napkin note dad who writes yes. notes to his daughter and her started very young writing notes to his daughter every day at her lunch he touches on the change of perspective too for him because he was diagnosed with cancer. And suddenly these notes became so much more than notes. Yep. Because. Go ahead. Just, just the shift in the way you look at life at that moment. It's true. It really is. And I, I ask all of these people about their attitude, where it comes from. And again, a lot of them, most of them, I would say it comes from, a big challenge that they've been through where they come out on the other side and they just realize how important life is. It's that's just that simple. So Garth is the napkin notes, dad. I mean, what a story. He started writing napkin notes to his daughter, Emma, and they were just simple little things when she was little and he would put them in her, you know, her knapsack before school, or sometimes he would put them on her, you know, her, her table at, you know, her desk or, or what have you in her bedroom, he would just leave them places. And he just realized how important those notes were to, to her. And so he started doing them every day. And then, you know, he gets a diagnosis of cancer, which is obviously terrible, but he realizes his own mortality and that how important these little notes are to connect him to Emma and he continues to write them. He writes like hundreds of them, decides to himself, if I die of cancer, so be it. I still want Emma to have a note every day. So he set it, set out to like write hundreds of these notes. And the good news is Garth is still here with us and Emma is off to college. And she says that she still has shoe boxes full of unread napkin notes. <laughs> so there, I mean, it's just, I I interviewed Garth and then I realized I had to interview Emma because Mm -hmm. 
I also write notes to my kids. I write lunchbox notes, uh, lunchbox jokes to my kids every day. Yes. Which reminds me, I've got to write them tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good reminder. I'm going to remind myself because my husband said that we're running out of jokes. But it's, you know, it's this connection that you have with your kid when, when they're at school, like, oh, my mom's thinking of me, like, I'm going to read this joke, you know, it's something amazing. And, and so I wanted to talk to Emma about how she felt as a young, a young child getting the note and how she feels today. And how, you know, that sort of that one little thing can just connect you and make you feel good. And Uh, that's all it takes. It's also nice to hear, I think, for parents, especially in this year when we've a lot of us have been home with our kids a a lot more than usual and that we're all thinking and obsessing about how am I messing up my kids this year with whatever I'm doing right in this tough time that sometimes it is those really really simple things that they'll remember and it 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 had such an impact on her that her father wasn't really anticipating but it was just that simple gesture that did it I think also there's when something really tough happens and that you know Unfortunately, all of us have had have lost something this year. When something really tough happens, there is a an opportunity for bravery afterwards. And I think, you know, you and I are both on TV and you know out there under the lights and sometimes being grilled or or what have you. And it can be nerve wracking. But I think, and this applies to a, probably a lot of a lot of life journeys and careers. But I remember after my husband died, and I did. Uh, a, a national debate. I was a, a a moderator in a national debate. And one of my thoughts as I was nervous going up to that was, I mean, like how scary are nine candidates for president now? Like, look what I've been through. This right. is how you can't scare me. What do you think about that from the, from your life's ups and downs? Is there bravery that comes from that? Absolutely. I do think about that, you know, and I still get nervous going on TV. I mean, I've been doing it for so long, 25 years, but I still get that little butterfly like, yeah, right. I think that that's good. I think if you don't, you're probably not good at it anymore. I I would agree. (laughs) I actually agree because I've always told my kids that if you're nervous, it means you want to do something Mm -hmm. well. But yes, there have been many times where I will be nervous about something especially recently, you know, talking about the governor and all that kind of stuff, man, I do get really nervous if I'm going to go on Tucker's show. Oh, yeah. But there is something in that I will say to myself, I've been through a lot, you know, I've dealt with a lot of stuff. And it's that's, that's an interesting, it's interesting, because I think to myself, how did I get myself into this, at this point where I'm like, you know, talking about one of the most powerful politicians and really like going against what he's doing. Right. I mean, that's a big deal. But then I think, but there were a lot of building blocks to get here. You know, I wouldn't be able to do this in my twenties. I wouldn't be able to do this in my thirties, might not be able to do this in my forties, but in my fifties with the experiences that I've had and the life, you know, the, the life challenges that I've gone through. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to hammer. <laughs> I, I'm I'm ready. Yeah. Well, and there's, you know, you do have this. Let's talk about this chapter of your of your life because as you're promoting Make Your Own Sunshine, you're the sunshine lady, but you are also very much in a very real and active way holding the governor of New York accountable for a cover up over the number of nursing home deaths during COVID in New York. New York, of course, was hit extremely hard in the early days of pa- the pandemic, and you and your husband and your kids were there. Tell me about what led up to y'all's loss in those early days. Well, my husband lost both of his parents to COVID in separate elder care facilities and tragic. You know, the lead up to that, I, I always want to be able to say, I have such compassion for people who are trying to figure out what to do with their parents who are, you know, who are, their health is failing. And that's what's happened, what happened with Sean's parents, they lived in the same four-story walk-up in Brooklyn for over 50 years. It was rent-controlled. They never wanted to move. For many years, we tried to get them to move. We talked, we said, we're going to help you. We'll, we'll pay, you know, we'll get, we need to get you to a bottom floor somewhere because their health was declining, but they never, they never wanted to do it. And so it got to the point where his dad was getting quite sick. He had dementia, 
had a lot of issues. There was always trips to the ER. His mom had trouble walking. Her health was failing. They couldn't take care of themselves and they couldn't take care of each other. So Sean took his mom around to look at some places. Then there was a nice assisted living residence close to us on Long Island that we would see them more often than right. we would in Brooklyn. And she liked it and it was bright and it was cheery. And she agreed and said, this looks great. We just had to get Mickey in better shape because he had a lot of you know, urinary tract infections and he we just needed care for him. So he was in temporarily in a nursing home, a rehab center. And then COVID happened. And, you know, they had, they had not been separated. This would have been their 60th anniversary this year. And, you know, we were quarantined in March, early March. We lost his dad in late March. We had no idea he was sick. We had no idea there was this mandate to put COVID positive patients into nursing homes. We weren't able to see them. Eyes and ears was the nursing home giving us updates. We get a call on a Saturday morning. Dad's not feeling well. Three hours later, he's dead. Like oh, three hours later. And we were in complete shock. We didn't find he, out he had COVID until the death certificate. So we didn't even know he had died of COVID. We didn't even know he was sick. And that was both in March? So he was late March. And then his mom died about two weeks after that. So Sean had to tell his mom that it, his dad had died. Worst moment of his life. I can imagine. And, and they were, were they able to physically see each other at that nope. time? No, right? Mm. No, nope, they weren't. And heartbreaking. So she got sick in her assisted living residence, went to the hospital, diagnosed in the hospital with COVID and died a few days later. And I remember it was around, you know, it was around Easter because the last thing she said to Sean was get Easter gifts for the kids and put my name on it. Just terrible. So, you know, she died in around Easter after Easter. And then I started to see some of these reports, the daily caller. Mm -hmm. I remember had a report saying Cuomo, New York was not counting those who died in the hospital. And I thought, that's my mother-in-law. So they're yeah. not counting my mother-in-law, even though she got COVID in her assisted living residence. Then I also started seeing the reports about the fact that there was this executive order to put COVID positive infected patients into nursing homes starting March 25th. And it was reversed May the 10th. So it was right. in place for 46 days. And we had no idea. I remember back to getting a phone call before Mickey got sick, his dad from one of the people in the nursing home saying, we're going to move your father to another floor because we're, we need to bring more people in. And we were like, oh, okay. But, oh, and no red flag because we didn't know they were infected patients. Yeah. So because I wasn't seeing those reports, I thought, why aren't, Anybody, why isn't anybody talking about this? You know, why isn't anybody talking about putting infected patients into nursing homes? And why isn't anybody talking about the fact that they're not counting the hospital deaths? Right. Well, and if I remember correctly, in the, even in those early days, at one point, the order in its online form was disappeared. Gone. For a period of time. For the, it still disappeared. You can't find it. You can find it on the internet because the internet is forever, but you can't find it on their health department. On, their, on their site, yeah. There, so, were early, and there were early clues that something was definitely afoot. Of course. And then I started seeing the governor on all the major channels, you know, and the pandemic king politician who was doing it right in New York. And they weren't talking about the nursing home stuff. So I thought, I'm, I'm going to have to say something. I went up to talk about it. My husband did not love it. He's a private person. He didn't want to talk about family. I remember at the time and talking to you about it and, and him saying like, he did not want to be public about this. Uh -oh. And what, what was that decision-making process like when you guys came to that together? I was talking to his sister and she was for it. She said, this is something that we need to like, tell people because he's getting away with this, you know, and this doesn't seem like science-based. No. You know, why would you put infected patients into a nursing home? And why is well, he being celebrated? That, that was the thing that got me just beyond any politics or anything. 
I'm very sympathetic to anyone of any party at the beginning of this pandemic, not knowing exactly what to do that understood. Yeah. We, none of us did, but almost the only thing we did know was that elderly folks were extremely vulnerable. Correct. So it made no sense on its face that this would have been the ruling, especially when there were empty overflows for said patients. Exactly. And, you know, and we weren't able to go see them either. We were afraid of having the illness and, and bringing it into them, right? Well, and so, you're high risk to begin with. I mean, that's a whole other layer on this. Right. So we were just, it was like, we couldn't do anything. Our hands were completely tied and we didn't have wakes, funerals, anything to, you know, honor their deaths. And you're right. The other part of this was they had facilities that were given to them by the federal government. You know, say what you will about Trump. You cannot like him. but he did provide the comfort ship, the Javits Center, and other makeshift hospitals for overflowed for overflow of patients in the hospitals. Why were they not used? That's something that has never been answered, ever. So the sister says, we should do this. Mm-hmm. And what's your next step? I wrote an op-ed and I appeared on Tucker Carlson. And that was the 21st or 22nd of May. And it was tough. I was, ugh. yeah, I can't even, I wouldn't be able to even watch that interview again. But he gave me a lot of time to tell the story. And then from there, it was, I really didn't stop. There were moments where Sean was like, can you just not do it this weekend? Can you, you know? And there were moments where I would get a call from whomever on television saying, can she come and talk? And Sean was just like, not tonight. And, and I res- obviously respected that. Yeah. And there were moments where I just never thought it was going to get through. You know, I, I, I remember writing my last op-ed for foxnews.com was in, I wrote it over the holidays in, in December. And I, I said to Sean, I said, this is it. This will be my last op-ed about this. Cause I don't think it's, it's getting through. I just, I think he's going to get away with it, but I had a piece of information. I had talked to a senior official with the Justice Department. I got I got a connection there. And I talked to him and he I said to him, I said, has Cuomo or his administration given you any any information? Because there was a DOJ investigation, right? right. Trump actually and Bill Barr opened up a DOJ investigation into Cuomo and other governors had, that had also had an executive order. Right. And I wanted to know if Cuomo had given them anything. Like, has he gotten any information? And there were a lot of things he couldn't tell me, but the one thing he could tell me was, as of October, they had received nothing from the Cuomo administration. So I thought, I'm going to write this op-ed. It's going to be my opus. It was, I mm-hmm. think, 10,000 words, maybe seven or 10,000 words. And they let me publish it on foxnews.com. And I said to Sean, I was like, this will probably be the last thing I write. And then right after the holidays, the, you know, the AG report from Letitia James came down. She basically said the numbers are not correct. They've been, for some reason, not counting over 60% of of the, the nursing home deaths. And then, you know, now we're at this date where there's a federal investigation, an FBI investigation, still the DOJ investigation, and people are finally starting, you know, we're starting to hear about the nursing homes, although there is another more salacious story that I I think is getting more attention. But listen, the fact that they're talking about it means something. Yeah. I I'd kind of joke with friends that the this is that was the month that the world caught up with Janice Dean. <laughs> because you had been there for a long time and I, you know and those of us who knew what you were doing and were paying attention to it if, and by the way if you if you want to if you want a real primer on how all of this went down Janice's long piece at foxnews.com is the place to go. It will it will outline how all of this happened for a year before anybody kind of got to it. And there was a smattering of reporting over the summer. Um, I believe AP did a little bit. Yes, Um, absolutely. There were some great reporting. I'm not going to say that, you know, he was totally brushed under the rug. AP was doing good stories. 
there was the Wall Street Journal, there were Albany reporters on the story. Yeah, and there, but there was this overriding narrative of him as the great steady hand at the wheel, which he added to with his book about him being the steady hand at the wheel, which is just sort of beyond parody. And one of the things that I've taken away from this, not that I've always been skeptical of politicians in general, but one of the things I took away from this is like people did have a need to have someone that they felt like was competently handling this thing. They didn't feel like they were finding it. So they looked to this guy who was kind of like, had this New York tough attitude. He was bringing that to the table. He looked like he had things under control. But for, for the people of New York, that's one thing. For the press of New York, they should have been looking deeper than that. And there was, in the, in the national press as well, there was, there was so much credulousness because they just wanted to feel like he was really doing well. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's a dangerous place to be because thing, things like this go under the radar. They do. Uh, listen, at the very beginning, I thought he was doing a great job. Yeah. You can find some tweets out there where I'm like, hey, New York tough. Good job, Governor Cuomo. Yeah, listen, I, I think a few things could have happened and we wouldn't be here talking about it. He could have, like you said at the very beginning, said, my hair was on fire. My goodness, I've never dealt with a pandemic before. I was trying to make sure there was there was beds ready in the hospitals. I was getting bad information. I will spend the rest of my days trying to right this wrong. I will talk to families. I will call them. I will have town halls. I'll write condolence notes. But instead, he celebrated himself. That's what made it so hard. Writing a book in the middle of a pandemic, winning an Emmy Award. uh, Oh, I forgot about the Emmy. Oh, the Emmy Award, Ted Kennedy Award. You know, just celebrating himself, all of these celebrities, the De Niro's, the Dunn Stillers, you know, it, it was just, it was like this, it was, I mean, I truly felt like I, I was yelling and there was this giant machine that, you know, would not listen to me. You know? No, there's, there's something to that when, when the entire, the, when the entire news industry and, and culture is going one direction and you're saying, but I'm seeing something completely different. So true. And it it takes courage to be the person who says, actually, something different is happening here. And journalists need to be those people. And I, I, too often they're not. You, journalists should be the weirdos in the room who go, I got to raise a couple questions about yeah. that. And, but it, that takes some courage. And you were the also the, the brunt of some, at the very least, deep condescension for bringing any of this up. Yes. Actually, at the very beginning, I got an email from someone that knows the Cuomo family really, really, really well. And it was, you know, it was at first encouraging, like, I'm really sorry for your loss. You, you are leading the charge on this, but watch your back, watch your back. I thought, what do you mean watch my back? Like, is this like the God, like, Like, what are we doing here? Father or something? Yeah. And I actually forwarded that note to my bosses at Fox because I did think, oh my goodness, if something happens, please, you know, investigate. And then there were from his advisors, people who he surrounds himself with, there were the, she's not a credible source on anything except the weather. They called our families, the ones that, you know, wanted answers, a death cult. Also told my sister-in-law to get a life, you know, so- Yeah. Yeah. These, these are the types of people that work for Governor Cuomo. Yeah. And what did, what did activism look like during a pandemic? I know you gathered those families on occasions, but that's a tricky thing. And this is, this is something that worries me about this era is there was this, because it's sort of frowned upon to gather, but you need to be doing that work, whatever your cause is. So it makes it tricky. What, what was y'all's strategy? We tried to make the, make the biggest impact we could at very few events. You know, we didn't have a lot of events, but the ones that we did go to, there was one in Albany. There was one also, I can't remember the place, but we would all, we would gather, we would socially distance, we would have our masks on, you know, we just, you know, you, ha- you have to try to do something. A lot of it was on social media. 
tried to raise awareness on social media. I wrote, I don't know how many op-eds I've written. I probably, you know, at least a dozen of them. So activism is online, writing, trying to get on television. Social media has been a big part of what I'm doing. You know, it's amazing. A year ago, I was still posting, you know, pictures of cute dogs and my lunchbox jokes. And now it's filled with with yeah. him it's and... a whole it's a whole different world but it, it it's it is gratifying to see someone walk through that and have the right story and then eventually everyone actually catch on because because what it was was the truth and it was finally revealed and able to be accepted by a lot more people uh, which will end in justice for the people who deserve it hope so yeah, as, as much as we can get. Tell me a little bit about your plans. I know you're working on something to remember those who were lost in the nursing homes. Yes, we are planning a remembrance wall, sort of like the 9-11 remembrance wall. And I've got, there's a few of us that are putting something together. So we're trying to remember that anniversary. It's, it's going to be the Sunday, I believe, after that in front of Cobble Hill Nursing Home in Brooklyn. It's the same family that in the summertime, they held a mock funeral for Governor Cuomo's book when the book came out. Yep. And so by, with the same family, the Arbini brothers who lost their father to COVID in the Cobble Hill nursing home. So we're going to put together a wall of remembrance of, you know, people want to send their pictures. It's the wecarewall at gmail.com. Okay. I think that's right. If it's not right, I'll get you the, the right address. And so encouraging people who have lost, if you've lost one, a loved one in a nursing home, we want a picture of them to remember them. And we're going to put them all on one big, big wall outside of the Cobble Hill nursing home on the weekend after March 25th. And tell me a little bit about your in-laws and just what kind of people they were. Oh, they were, like I said, born and bred Brooklyn. I mean, you talk about New York tough. Governor likes to talk about him being New York tough, but these, you know, these people born and bred. His dad, New York City firefighter for 23 years. Before that, he was with the Air Force. He was stationed in Hawaii and him and his bride, Dee, before they got married, they they corresponded. They were pen pals. So she was in Brooklyn and he was writing her love letters from Hawaii. And Sean, actually, when he was clearing out their apartment, found a lot of their love letters. We haven't looked at them, but we will. We'll look at them and their correspondence. And, you know, as the story goes, he proposed to her through a love letter. Oh. And so then he got back from the Air Force. They got married. He joined the FDNY and they had three kids, Sean, his sister, Donna and Michael. And they, you know, lived in this tiny rent-controlled apartment for so many years. I remember, you know, we used to go there, obviously, a lot. And I always thought, how did they raise three children here? You're crazy. <laughs> but Dee, she, you know, she was a, a homemaker and raised the three kids. She worked as a, at a dentist's office in the neighborhood for, I think, 20 years. She made a wonderful meatball and a red sauce. <laughs> And she was just one of those people that would never, ever forget a birthday, a celebration. A card was in the mail. Yeah. Like I used to marvel at it. Like, oh my gosh, you remember my birthday? And, and like I said, Easter gifts, always. My husband used to talk to her every single day, like mm. on his drive home. And he still, he still has the urge to call her. Yeah. I remember thinking when I read about them in some of your op-eds that they, they lived they lived a great American life. It just, mm -hmm. it looked wonderful and their story's wonderful and their kids are wonderful. How are Sean and your kids doing? And have you guys had, have you been able to grieve? I mean, the lack of funerals is a real issue in this time. And then you have all of this on top of it. We were able to bury them. They were buried together. And how that happened was my sister-in-law has been friends with a funeral director, Frankie. God bless you, Frankie. Thank God. Because during that time, like literally people had nowhere to bring the bodies. Yeah. They, they're just, the funeral homes couldn't take anymore. And because we knew Frankie, he arranged to, you know, for 
Mickey's ashes, Mickey's ashes stayed with Frankie. And then when his mom died, you know, we were able to, to, to bury both of them. And he made that happen. I, I don't know how other families did it. We did not have funerals or wakes or, and there was hardly any family there. You know, it was just a very closed burial service. So to your, to your point, to your question, I don't think we've really properly grieved for them. We're hoping that we'll be able to do something for their memory and have family come. You know, it was very difficult for Dee's sister, who lives in Texas, who was her mm-hmm. best friend, was not able to come. I mean, it's just, it's still very tragic. And it, all happened, it just all happened so fast, yeah. too. There yeah. was no lead up. I mean, even when someone's elderly, it's so jarring. It is. It happened so quickly. And I haven't been able to see my mom for over a year. That's mm-hmm. been really difficult because we're close. You know, my mom missed the first Christmas ever since my children have been born. She lives in Canada. And so that's been really difficult. And and we were going to have her try to come. And then I was like, mom, I need you to be in a plastic bubble. We cannot, we cannot lose you right now. Yeah. It just can't, ha- cannot happen. So, you know, we're optimistic. I think, I think the summertime, hopefully, God willing, you know, mm-hmm. we'll be able to spend some time together. Yeah, I hope so too. Uh, that's uh, so many people are hoping for that this summer. And yeah. I, I understand the desire to put her in a, in a plastic bubble. <laughs> like, Lord, I can't handle anything else right now. It's so true. But, you know, I will say I feel so bad for the families who still have loved ones in nursing homes. They can't get in to see their loved ones. I mean, I say to Sean all the time, like, can you imagine it's a year later and we wouldn't be able to see? Well, I, I think we would have done everything to get them out and, and bring yeah. them here somehow, you know, but my gosh, it's just not humanity. It's, it's not. So tough. The, the separation plus the horror of COVID plus the idea that if something happens, you can't really say goodbye in a traditional way. That's that's very tough on people. I've I've worried about the, that this whole time because, you know, with my own loss, it was five days later. I get to have a service, and we all be, we all get to be together. And being yeah. together was so much a part of what helped me. Yes, uh, that I can't imagine having to put it off for a year. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. We'll get there though. I know we'll be able to celebrate their life at some point. Well, tell me to, to close us out here. Tell me a little bit about the dichotomy of being <laughs> you. First, I want to ask you this. I do want to ask you this. You're not used to being in the political firestorm per se, right? You do the weather. That is, that's what you're up to. And you like the cute dog pictures and the, and the jokes and the yeah. being in the middle of a political firestorm, especially one with a, figure this high profile brings so many haters, mm-hmm. uh, even beyond the normal TV haters, which we all, you and I both know and love. How do you deal with that part? I try not to look at it. I try not to. I mean, listen, I'm going to see it. I'm going to see it there. And sometimes I'll, you know, I'll, what it, you, re, you retweet it and you, you put like your little caption in there. Like, you know, it's usually like, okay, weather girl, like, you know, be creative. Be also, creative. Like, let, me, let me give you a quiz on the weather. I, I know you don't know that much. There's some science and math it's, involved. It's a specialized skill. Right. <laughs> but the weather girl thing is a fun is, you know, in the, in the beginning, man, there were, you know, the, they loved Cuomo. So anybody going against him, I got it. I got a lot, a lot of some hate mail, but but having said that, there's also been a tremendous amount of love and support. You know, Twitter can be a really dark place, but I will say that the supporters and the ones that have believed, you know, in accountability and what we were going through as a family, they have been steadfast. And and that, I, I really appreciate that. And and my gosh, the, the strangers out there that have been supportive. Yeah. You know, to the, to the haters, I kind of feel bad for them because that's that's what they that's how they function is they just want to be you know they just want to be haters well i would bet that given the turn of events you probably had some haters who even if they don't admit it now have to look at the situation differently because that's what happens when you have the facts on your side but i think your point is is good about the amount of support you got as well because i think i I limit my exposure to Twitter because it's a good idea. It can be full of 
negativity, but if I'm realistic, most of the comments I get are very nice. And so it's a good lesson from the, from the Janice Dean life philosophy, not to focus on that all the time. It's true. Just focus on the mostly sunny tweets. Yeah. So last question about your, while you're doing this and also promoting the sunshine book, (laughs) make your own sunshine. How do those two work together for you? That's a really good question. And I'm going to let you in on a sort of a, a little discussion that, you know, my husband and I have had, my editor and I have had. Like, when does the Cuomo stuff calm down? When do we just get to talk about the sunny stuff, like the good stuff? And I just came to the realization that this is all part of it. You know, this is me. I, yes, I am the sunshine girl. Yes, I love doing the weather and doing, you know, enjoying National Cheeseburger Day. That is me to a T, but I am also somebody who is very fiercely protective of my family and my husband and someone who, if you read Mostly Sunny, I have definitely had my battles with some powerful men and have realized that it's important if you have a voice to use that voice for good. So this is not, you know, if this is not just a new part of my personality. It's always been there, but that's just, that's it. You know, I I can be that person who is an advocate and wants answers from my family, but I can also be the one that's doing interviews with people who are doing amazing, kind things for others that those two can coexist. Yeah. I think I, I, I tend to be an optimistic person and I think it can sometimes be read as just happy-go-lucky mm-hmm. when in fact being sunny does not mean that you necessarily let stuff slide or lay down for anybody that's exactly that's exactly it yes the you as my children will tell you <laughs> it's very true it's all part of the same package you know so like it or not this is it i love it you're making your own sunshine during this whole during this whole tough year what would be your one parting word of advice for folks who you know, people have lost jobs, they've lost loved ones, they've lost their connection to church or community yeah. this year. Even the things that are small, we felt like we've lost are are kind of a big deal, just our routine. What's What would you give somebody who's trying to figure out, what's my first step out of this hole? Don't lose faith. Don't lose faith. Accept kindness. I think, you know, that's another big part of the book is you have, you can't just see the sunshine, go outside and see it, right? You have to look for it. You really do. Sometimes you have to like look under the rug and (laughs) look in the closet. Like, where is it? You really truly have to be open up to goodness and kindness. And that's when I think it happens. You know, if you sort of have this, you know, outlook of the world is terrible, people are awful, then you're not, you're not going to be open up to the goodness that is out there. And, you know, like I said, writing this book during one of the darkest times, I was able to really know that we're all connected. We're all connected. Don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, we had a a firefighter in the neighborhood put, I'm going to start to cry, but go to a restaurant and get us a meal and put it on the doorstep. And he rang the doorbell and he was six feet away. I opened up the door and he's just like, I don't know if you need dinner but I brought you dinner. And I was like, Oh my God, Thank you (laughs) You know, and just so be open to it, but also do something for someone else too. Like, you know, Oh, you know, I haven't talked to this person in a long time. Oh, I'll call him later. Nope. Call him right now. You just never know when that phone call means something to somebody. And it, it can be a little thing. I just feel like the sun always comes out. Sometimes it's really stormy and the hurricane is really bad. But if you have love and support and you're open to that and you, and you ask for that to come into your life, it does, it does come into your life. Yeah. And, uh, and those little things, they sound small, but they transcend the big things that worry us when it comes to whether it's whether it is political fights, whether it is the feeling that things are just sort of off the rails, which is how people have felt often this year, whatever the thing is, it's probably those things do connect people and transcend that. And if we are not, if we're not trying to find ways to connect after this year, we're going to have a 
trouble getting out of this. You, you're, you're absolutely right. We are, but I'm, I, I have faith. I do have faith. Well, thank you for being here with me. My friend, Janice, it's so nice to see your face. I know I feel the same way. Um, everybody can't make your own sunshine. And her last book too, Mostly Sunny, great, great read. And the Freddie the Frogcaster series. Is there anything else you would like to pitch Janice Dean? She's at Janice Dean on Twitter. Yeah. If you want to go there and, you know, focus on the good. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that are, you know, it's, it's, a, it's still very political because I'm still trying to, you know, get that message across. But I do, I can't wait till the day where I am sort of back to the, the cute dogs and the National Hamburger Day and, no. you know, but it's okay. It's all part of the same thing. It's all me. That that day will come, Janice. Will. Be, especially for Hamburger Day. Well, I can't wait till we're all together and we're cheering. Cheers. All right. Well, first. thank you for bringing your sunshine today. Have a good one, Janice. Thank you, Mary Catherine. <laughs>